Welcome to the Goodness Pays Leadership Podcast. I'm Paul Botts, the founder and CEO of Good Leadership, an executive team coaching firm headquartered in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This morning, we produced a virtual broadcast of the Good Leadership Breakfast Series, a leadership development event that's now in its 12th year programming. Today was our 89th episode. The pandemic forced us out of a ballroom with 200 people and into a TV studio, and that was fun. Because we're broadcasting, we had guests from all across the country and many people who are new to the Good Leadership Breakfast. Our mission is to spread goodness through good leaders because we've proven goodness pays. Goodness is when people thrive together in a culture of encouragement, accountability, and positive teamwork. Our niche in the coaching industry is focusing on the idea good leadership is a team sport. Today's podcast expands on the conversation we shared with Bruce DeWitt, CEO of Testec. Let's join that conversation in progress. Today's meeting is focused on an idea we call operational assurance. Let's meet our speaker for today. He's an accomplished military veteran whose experience in aviation helped him rise to become the CEO of a mid-sized growth company in the aerospace industry. Bruce DeWitt, hey, will you please tell us the one-minute story of what is Test Tech and what is your mission? You bet. Test Tech was founded the same year that Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, 1969. And since then, it has grown to be the world's largest independent provider of test equipment for for aircraft all over the world. Um, Every aircraft has thousands of components on it. And each one of those components must be tested to make sure that the aircraft can fly safely and passengers arrive safely. We like to think that nothing flies without Test Tech. I'm going, to th- I'm going to think about airplanes differently now when I fly the next time, for sure. You and me both. Well, I also know that you were trained as uh, a pilot in the Air Force and that you went on to uh, fly some jet airplanes and even become a test pilot. Uh, I heard you tell me that you flew enemy aircraft in mm-hmm. under the cover of darkness. Could be. Uh, but true or false now, did you actually fly the Goodyear blimp? Yes, that's true. It's got a big wheel like a tugboat. And I flew it over L.A., but not during a Super Bowl or anything like that. Well, I look forward to hearing about how all of those experiences helped you become the successful CEO that you are today. An important part of the breakfast is audience participation in polls during the meeting. It helps us improve the coaching work we do with executive teams like Testec. Here's a snapshot of some of the information we collected today. 74% of leaders told us their immediate supervisor consistently makes decisions based on goodness. That's important because it ties to financial success. 94% say they were energized when explaining their company's plan and goals. And 71% say their team reviews progress against their plan on a consistent basis. These concepts are really, really important to the central topic of the day, which was operational assurance. And now it's time to hear more from Bruce DeWitt. Let's start by reminding our audience, you have the opportunity to send in questions for Bruce, which Chloe may ask Bruce after the break. But now, hey Bruce, let's start with your love of aviation. Where did that come from? It actually started with my father. My dad was a jet engine mechanic in the Air Force back, oh, in the 70s, mm-hmm. 60s, if I have to date myself. I can remember growing up uh, by his work. You know, I go down there where he was working, it was right on the flight line. I think by the time I was 10 years old, he had managed to make me memorize every aircraft that was flying around the Air Force bases. So uh, that, was a, that was a good fun So you'd experience. see one up in the air and he'd say, what is that? Yep, he would. And I wouldn't eat dinner if I got it wrong. 
Obviously, you figured out how to answer yeah, all those, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> Pardon me. Well, it, it never ceases to amaze me how many different paths leaders have to getting to where they are today. Did you always want to be CEO? And if, if not, I mean, how did you make your way up to this role? Yeah, I, I really didn't even think of being a CEO. All through my military career, you know, I worked hard at uh, being a test pilot acquisition guy and a career officer. But then when I retired, I went to work for Raytheon. And Raytheon, large business, uh, aerospace contractor. And I became a senior leader in Raytheon after I, I really developed a love for the business side. Mm -hmm. And from there, I moved to um, other large public company, ATK, uh, here in Minneapolis. And um, while serving as a senior leader in ATK, an opportunity presented itself to be a CEO for private equity firm. And I couldn't spell private equity or CEO at the time. <laughs> so um, I had to do a little research on it, and I really thought that might be an exciting place. And it was. And since then, I've become a, a CEO for multiple private equity firms. I've gone out, and uh, it's a great place for me and my personality. Fast pace, uh, constantly changing. You just don't have time to sit. I'm sure along the way you figured out certain things. We call them pivot points yeah. where you, you learn something for how to be more high performing or how to be a better leader, better CEO. What, what are some of those specific pivot points that you can recall right now that you can share with us? Yeah, um, I think the first happened when I was at ATK and the CEO, the then CEO, um, would take the division leaders and he would, he would grill them on anything that was going wrong within the business. And he would go through death by a thousand questions. Mm -hmm. And um, I can rem remember one, and it was a huge learning experience about accountability for me. I was uh, being asked a specific question on why we were below profit on this, what was going on, and I was answering point after point. But the bottom line was it came down to it and said, look, I bid the system wrong. It's my fault. And he stopped right there. He says, that's all I needed. I needed you to be accountable. Well, that was a huge eye-opening one. But I think the second one, and probably the most important one about being an effective CEO, it was my first stint as a private equity CEO. And I came into the business, and everybody in the business was about, oh, don't worry about it. We're going to have to sell this business pretty quickly. So there's nothing really that we can do. We're just going to go about the day by day. Nobody in the business had a compelling idea of what to do, how to go forward, and what we were about. And everybody saw their lives in terms of months, not years. Hmm. And, um, and you're well aware of this. Mm -hmm. um, sat back, and advice from a very effective coach said, go out there, create a long-term vision, and even if you're not here to go see it all the way through, get everybody on that path. And we did that. It was extremely effective, and from that point on, Having that strong, long-term vision, that path that's compelling to everyone in the business, I found is so important. It's, it's really made me a lot better CEO. I remember those conversations. Yeah, I bet you do. Yeah, uh, vision is about physics. So if you and I are looking at the same thing and it's out there seven years into the future, we're actually looking at the same thing. Yeah, that's right. But when we look at what's on our to-do list, we do this. Yep. I look at my list and you look at yours. And everybody was looking at their to-do list and the culture was stuck. It was. Okay, so the vision, the long-term vision of Test Tech today is to become the most successful platform company mm -hmm. in the aerospace testing industry. For people like me, um, what does it mean to be a platform company? Yeah, platform company is something that's rather unique in the vernacular of uh, private equity, mid-sized companies. So as a mid-sized company, you really have two paths in the future. You can be the one that is bought up 
and pushed into another company, mm -hmm. or you can be the one that is the base, the foundation to build on, mm -hmm. where you are actually bolting on other companies mm -hmm. into you. Mm -hmm. That platform company, though, you just can't say, oh, today I'm a platform company, I'm the foundation. You have to have the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. You have to have all the components to be an effective platform company. It, it involves around great predictable execution, mm -hmm. strong growth, a compelling uh, difference in the marketplace mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and a stable and strong leadership team. So that's the effectiveness. That's what we're building today so we can be that platform company in the future. And so when we change invest investors the next time, we're the one that they're going to bolt on to. So my guess is that you need a lot of discretionary time to actually you know, work on those sorts of things that they're not what we would call the day-to-day. -day. Um, you and I have talked a lot about this conversation around operational assurance. That's the theme for today's meeting. Will you tell us in your own terms what, the, what does that mean to you? Yeah, operational assurance is having predictable execution of the business. The ability to handle risks when they come up, the ability to find opportunities, and have the business uh, rather boring, I guess is the best way to say it. The business it functions as a constant chugging through the water. Mm-hmm. And um, when you have that, it frees up your senior leadership. Because the business can be run by your directors. Mm -hmm. The senior leadership can step back, establish the strategy, mm -hmm. pivot it when it's necessary, like during the pandemic times. Yeah, that's right. And move the business forward mm -hmm. to get the next set of investors, mm -hmm. the next idea out there, mm -hmm. to pivot towards the next place in the market. Yeah. So we work with a lot of mid-sized companies, and we find that operational assurance is very rare. The mm -hmm. definition that we use is that operational assurance means that the directors deliver on the tactics so that the executive team can lead transformational strategies. Um, when you formed your executive team, you had a very large group of leaders on the leadership team. We helped you shrink that down. We introduced the goodness pays leadership system. That's the tools and processes to help make sure you have alignment so you can create commitment, which allows for open accountability. When we talked about leadership as a system, you had this big aha moment. Can you share what that moment was like? Yeah, actually, um, the way you set it up is when I, when I walk into a business, every CEO has a game, game plan. Mm -hmm. And I set up three things. I set up an uh, operating system, a financial system, and a growth or a front-end uh, system. Yeah, sales system. S sales system, yeah, mm -hmm. thanks. And so I had all these set up. They were running the tactically, three independently, moving along, chugging along, but I realized we weren't coordinating. We weren't working. There's something missing. Mm -hmm. And what was missing was the alignment between the leaders across all these mm -hmm. different systems, that we were expecting the same thing. We were holding the same level of accountabilities, that we had the same values mm -hmm. that the employees thought of us as one group running one business. Mm -hmm. So that's when we took a step back and said, what we're missing here is that system about leadership. I'm kind of a system person. Mm -hmm. So that's when we pursued the leadership system. So then, what was the biggest change in the business? Yeah. Now, I, I know that you personally got a lot of your time back, but yeah. what did you see as the biggest changes actually in the day-to-day -day of the business? Yeah, so we started out as a founder-based company, as many mid-sized companies mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. And in a founder-based company, especially in ours, the founder was the original center point of all decisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, you couldn't go around that business and someone make a decision unless they went to that founder. Mm -hmm. He's the only one who understood the risk. He's the only one who understood the bidding. He's the only one who understood sales. Mm -hmm. 
so as we started putting our systems into place, what we saw was the empowerment was starting to move down. Mm -hmm. And people who had never before been able to make a decision to business started embracing that. Mm -hmm. And then they got excited about mm -hmm. it. And then they started finding um, opportunities. Mm -hmm. They owned their portion of the business. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest difference. So we have a couple of minutes here to go just a little bit deeper in this now. Can you think of a, an example, something that used to get bogged down by the hub and spoke system mm. that the founder had created that's, that's functioning so much better today that's creating that kind of empowerment and energy? Yeah, I, I guess the best one is the bidding system. Bidding. Yeah, yeah. so each one of our projects, our, our test systems, our, a test system is almost room size and it's multiple millions of dollars and very complex. So this used to come in, the founder would sit down and sketch out the design, say, this is how I want it bid and this will be the price, boom, out the door. And if he was wrong, you know, it was lost business. And no one else knew how to do that. So what we did is we started breaking that down. Mm -hmm. Said, okay, this team develops the entire proposal. They recommend the pricing based on the facts that they have in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And we started building that and then reviewing it and having discussions about it. And pretty soon, that team was able to not only create very effective and winning proposals, mm -hmm. but also find the holes in when our losses were coming through mm -hmm. and why we lost mm -hmm. and how to stop that from happening mm -hmm. again. You know, it really has helped. Uh, we've empowered that team so much that they've changed our win rate from you know, about 12 to 13% of pro, uh, proposals going out the door to north of 35 in about that, a year and a half. That's, that's transformational. It is. Well, so the opposite side of transformation is disruption. <laughs> so not everybody likes it when things get yeah. way better in a transformation. So what were some of the, um, the signals of resistance or maybe pushback on people who maybe felt like they weren't winning in that transformation? Yeah, that's a good point. So a lot of people who had a lot of decision, not decision authority, but a lot of say beforehand, mm -hmm. Um, didn't feel disempowered, but the fact that other people were empowered mm -hmm. to the same level they were, and maybe they weren't a senior, mm -hmm. um, that caused a little bit of disruption and some bad behaviors. Mm -hmm. And so those behaviors were almost anti-cultural mm -hmm. because you no longer had that single founder, but you had a couple people in the business that wanted to be that founder replacement. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, uh, that that transformation can't continue mm -hmm. until you either change that person's attitude yeah. or you relieve them. And so we had, we had some big transformation issues with that portion of culture had to get fixed. Difficult times. Well, one of the things we see that is the biggest benefit for actually getting to operational assurance is that the people at the top, particularly the CEO, mm has a lot of discretionary time. Yeah. And sometimes it's a little disorienting. You're like, what am I supposed to be doing today, right? Yeah. So, so what are the kind of things that you're working on with that extra time? Yeah, so uh, the most effective one is right now I'm in what I would call the last, last period of, this, uh, of the ownership, the current ownership of my business. So I'm developing um, with my investors the path forward. Uh, what's our path to sale? What's our strategy to sell? What's going to make us unique? How are we going to raise the mm -hmm. multiple? Mm -hmm. uh, looking at uh, bolting on a couple quick bolt-ons mm -hmm. to demonstrate that we are a platform and have the capability to do that. So I'm spending most of my time outside the day-to-day, -day, uh, where the first two years, it was deep inside. Mm -hmm. 
Well, the reason you're here in the studio today is you, you live here in the Midwest. That's right. Yeah, so you and your wife actually live on a sheep farm out to the western side of Minneapolis-St. Paul, and I'm just curious to find out what, what was the decision-making process so that you, you decided to buy and move on to a sheep farm because you're running this company like out of your spare bedroom? Uh, yeah, above the garage. <laughs> above the garage, uh, yeah, okay. I've been relegated Yeah, so to. what's up with the sheep farm? You know, it started with a dog. Um, it, we, we bought a border collie because we fell in love with these border collies. And then my wife watches this show and I saw this. I said, hey, look at these border collies. They can herd sheep. And it was really the <laughs> coolest thing. But then I needed sheep. So, um, and we didn't have a farm. We lived in town. So we bought a farm, bought a handful of sheep. And um, so today we have multiple farms and over 400 sheep and and three border collies. I, I want to meet that dog. Yeah, it's, pretty, a, it's a very influential a dog. special <laughs> dog. Next time, let's bring your dog with you when yeah. we do this interview. At this point in the program, we acknowledged our sponsors and raised over $2,000 through a program called the Bucket of Goodwill. We sent the money to the 4-H. That's one of Bruce DeWitt's favorite charities. It would... The whole conversation was facilitated by my sidekick at the breakfast, Chloe Radcliffe, who also is called our goodness barista. Her job is to whip up an online buzz about goodness during the breakfast. She also collected some questions from the audience. Let's jump back in here. So now let's, let's get back to you, Bruce. I, I see that we had very nice results there on the poll, and we'll continue to pull all these things together and share them. So, uh, Chloe, what kind of questions are coming in through the, uh, through the audience that we want to talk to Bruce about? Yeah. All right. Here's one audience question. Bruce, what is a daily habit you have, you have that helps your life and leadership? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I think there's two things. Is um, First, professionally, I um, established a, a very specific call structure, especially during the, during the COVID environment, the pandemic. Um, so I, I reach out to my top five executive leaders uh, we have a 15-minute session starting at 8 o'clock every morning and goes through until each one is complete. It's just a quick touch base. How are you doing? I found out that, you know, you, can, you can't wait there and say, oh, maybe I'll call, maybe I'll not. If you schedule it, it'll get done. It keeps the communication open. And then the second thing is on, on the professional side is at 10.30 every morning Eastern time, we have our staff stand up mm-hmm. or where we go through all the process. Mm-hmm. So that very specific structure gives me ideas of where I need to focus my time in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. So that gets me started the right way. Personally, I do pretty much the same thing. Um, My first thing in the morning is take care of my sheep. And uh, so I get up very early and I have certain ones that I'm responsible for when I'm in town. And um, it gets me outside, gets me going, gets me thinking about something other than myself. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that, well, that's kind of the connection I wanted to make. We, normally, we recommend that leaders you know, care for others more than themselves to get really good results. I've, I didn't really, use, I wouldn't have talked about sheep until today. So, yeah, yeah that's okay. Yeah, I was okay. wondering about that. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, but that's the thing. Uh, our audience, uh, I want to recommend that our audience starts sheep farms. That'll <laughs> become a successful CEO. Uh, we have another question. Uh, Bruce, you're a numbers guy. How do you blend a goodness mindset with a numbers game? Yeah. So um, I, I, I like the numbers for the results. You know, so I, 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 I'm really one, like many people espouse, 
measure what you want to change or mm -hmm. where you want to gain traction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we set up the numbers early, we set up those and we focus on that. And the way the goodness comes in is the, not the fact that you're looking at the numbers, but how you review those numbers. Mm -hmm. So it's the review, the consistency in review, the non-judgmental review. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. how is this going? Um, why are we not hitting this number? Is there something more we should be doing? How can we help? Mm -hmm. And moving in that, that kind of questioning format mm -hmm. uh, allows you to move in with goodness mm -hmm. in your leadership style mm -hmm. and your values. And mm -hmm. that's what we work on in a company. No blame mm -hmm. is the big key. Mm -hmm. And so as long as you're approaching the numbers with the idea of these numbers are telling us something, how do we help the person in charge to mm -hmm. get them moving mm -hmm. forward? Mm -hmm. That's that's really how we move. Yeah. So in the definition of goodness, you've got encouragement, accountability, and positive teamwork. And accountability without blame mm -hmm. is what allows us to celebrate the progress and mm -hmm. for everybody to get better every day. That's right. It's been fun to watch you build that into your culture. That's that's for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, it's very effective. Mm -hmm. Great, Bruce. We have one more question for you. Uh, it sounds like Testec is super successful. What are you focusing on in the business now? Yeah. So. In order to set ourselves up as a platform company, which is our focus, and that's what everybody in the company, all mm -hmm. 250 people rally around, mm -hmm. is we wanted to make sure that all our execution was standardized, everything was going smooth. What we're focused on this year, um, it's our three strategic goals, is we're, Im we're improving our niche in the marketplace by expanding our aftermarket capability. Mm -hmm. None of the other tests capital test equipment companies really have a strong aftermarket. So mm -hmm. we're working hard on that aftermarket. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is we're making our front end of our business more digital. Uh, we're mm -hmm. really focusing on, it was at a basic level of digital work, but as everybody knows, the pandemic has changed all yeah, that. We're sure. really getting uh, in on that one. And the last is something that must be done for every platform company is make sure you're on a single ERP system. Oh. So we're installing ERP this year, one of our last years before the transition of ownership. Gosh, the ERP systems affect every single person's job every single moment of every day. They do. Yeah, and boy, what we've experienced is that um, the people who lead that kind of technology transformation really need to understand goodness and have good people skills. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, uh, you know, lots of projects like that have sort of died on the coral reef. Um, mm -hmm. What's going well in your ERP transformation that, that you can share with the rest of us? Yeah, so the first thing was is uh, what we did is we understood early. We spent a lot of time last year prepping. Mm -hmm. So the prep work is taking us into this year very effectively. But the one thing that we did really well is we set the boundaries. Hmm. And in setting the boundaries for our ERP implementation, we said no customization. Because we had multiple disparate tools uh -huh. within the business. And we said, what we're going to do is we're just going to end up with a nightmare, constant amount of workload. We're going to buy a tool that we will use out of the box. And so that out of the box thought, mm -hmm made us do a lot of approach to make sure the one we bought mm -hmm. was the one we needed. Mm -hmm. And now there's no discussion about, well, we could tweak this part of the system. We could move this one. Mm -hmm. So the out-of-the-box thinking is prevailing as we move forward. That's been making it very effective, efficient. Mm -hmm. So uh, well, I, I broke one of my inner rules here, and that was I was going to try to avoid acronyms. So an ERP is an Enterprise Resource Planning, planning system. system. It's software that helps everything work together. 
I should have said that before I asked the question. Yeah, you and me both. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so Bruce, we have seven additional questions that came from the back and forth on social media while we were doing the, uh, the TV version of The Breakfast. The first question are, what are some of the key practices or systems that you as the CEO are putting in place to build succession planning and depth at the leadership part of your company? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, initially when you're a CEO of a private equity company, you come in and a lot of it is when you're especially transitioned from founder, it's very operationally related. You know, putting in your base systems, base setup. And so as a CEO, I generally have a broader uh, direct reporting chain at that point. You know, this last time is about 12 people. So after everything gets moving, and after I'm ready to transition to the next step, then I brought in, um, after evaluation, a very tight group for executive levels. And they're between those 12 that I had originally and myself. So now I have a direct report group of four, and those group are the ones that actually work on the succession upwards to CEO and also work on the leadership team succession to the executive level. So just by putting in that intermediate level, that's primarily the activity that I use to encourage proper succession planning from the leadership level through the executive level all the way up to the CEO. So when I step out or my CFO steps out, there's a replacement set ready. Yeah, so that part of the, the transformational work then gets done by that group of people, and the operational assurance happens then below that group, right? At the director level, that's right. Yeah. Well, let's go back to your flying days. People were fascinated with the fact that you've you know, learned how to fly uh, the most, some of the world's most exotic aircraft, and including some enemy, um, enemy aircraft. Um, what do you learn from, what is, first of all, what are some of your favorite memories of flying? And yeah. then from that... How do you learn to be a better leader because of your flight training? So favorite memories of flying? Yeah, so I flew about 50 different aircraft, um, and that's a function of being a test pilot. You get to have your hands on quite a few different aircraft, including, like you said, alluded to, um, enemy ones, Goodyear blimps, things like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, I would have to, looking back, I had one that was just a favorite. It wasn't the aircraft. It was the experience. I was sent out to test fly what was called a T-67M, Slingsby Firefly. The Air Force was thinking about buying it and using it for an initial flight screener. This thing was highly acrobatic, a small, you know, double-seat airplane, prop-driven, and, you know, kind of a, as a test pilot, they were used to flying some of the very high-tech stuff. This was not so high-tech, but, man, it was fun. It was like a little sports car, you know? And I was flying it with a um, British test pilot, who worked for Slingsby. He was, he was much older than I, double my age. And um, Nori was just a phenomenal man. But we'd go out to prove out the airplane. And I can remember saying, okay, we're going to see if this thing inverts spins. And he said, no, no, never. It'll never invert spin. So we got it up, forced it into an inverted spin. It got spinning. He was all excited that we got it spinning. And then I'm sitting there looking at Nori and go, Okay, now we got to get it out. Mm -hmm. And after multiple attempts, we still hadn't popped this out, and the ground's coming up pretty fast. <laughs> and uh, finally, we, we pulled it out with a few thousand feet to spare, and he was so excited. I was scared. And uh, it's one of those things that will always sit back. It's like one person's 
uh, panic was another person's just love. Um, so that was a good experience. I think I'll never forget the phrase, the ground was coming up fast. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's pretty <laughs> that's funny. exactly it. Well, so then tell me a little bit more about then how does flight training, including that kind of yeah. thing, how does that prepare you for the type of leadership that you have now? Yeah, I learned early on. When, when you first go into pilot training, the first day you're taught, regardless of the situation, this is what you do, and you memorize this. Um, you're in an emergency situation. What do you do? And they would say, Lieutenant, stand up. And you would stand up and you would say, first thing I would do, sir, is maintain aircraft control. The second thing, I will analyze the situation. And the third thing is, I will take appropriate action. Then you walk through that to maintain aircraft control. I'll do this. To analyze the situation, you ask a thousand questions. And then after you got your response done, you say, and now um, to fix the situation, this is what I would do. So those three things, maintain aircraft control, analyze the situation, take appropriate action. That's kind of been my mantra for leadership. You sit there and uh, no matter what happens, how terrible things go, first of all, maintain control of the business. Second thing is analyze the situation. Don't jump through that one because you will take the wrong action. That's amazing. Well, and I, uh, I know you probably actually build some people around you that when things get a little wonky, they help you maintain control of the business, too. That's right. Yeah, none of that stuff happens alone. Um, okay, so let's go back to the Goodyear blimp. That got a lot of chuckles. Yeah. So, I mean, so you just explained this really nimble, fabulously creative little aircraft. Now, come on, the Goodyear blimp. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah. So I can remember I got into it, uh, in, into the gondola part, and I'm going up there, and the, there's this big ship wheel. But it's not, you know, left and right ship wheel like you see Mickey Mouse, you know, thing. It's forward and back. So you, you spin it forward to get the nose down. You spin it back to get the nose up. And um, it took forever. I mean, I, I, you know, I would spin <laughs> this thing, and I would wait. You know, we, we used to joke you. Yeah, I'll go out and have a cup of tea and see what's going on. And then there was my co-pilot was sitting there pulling levers to gain altitude and uh, move the blimp, you know, the gas around in the blimp. So this thing was not a flying machine. It was a, <laughs> it was a behemoth of a balloon. But, yeah, it was slow. My uh, hour and a half flight felt like 12 hours. <laughs> <laughs> so you only did that once. Once, yeah. Yeah, that, that's amazing. Well, let's go um, to some of the special interest things. Um, you told us earlier, we heard this, that you, um, you actually live on a sheep farm and you figured out how to run this aerospace technology company um, out, out of your spare bedroom. How do you balance the, the pressures of the business with also the pressures of the farm? How does that work for you? Yeah, actually, I'm very lucky. My wife is a full-time farmer. Uh, that is her occupation. And so she's a professional farmer and she runs our farm. She uh, does, as uh, like any business, she does everything. I'm kind of a hired hand when I'm available. So um, the, the fun part is, is when it's lambing time. And so you're up all night and one person really can't do it all. So during lambing time and when I'm home, I will, uh, I will spend the night shift. And then when I'm done, I, I put on my... Uh, my work pants and head on up to the garage office and and run the business. Well, so. when I did the interview with you for this, you had a very small little lamb that you were actually bod- bottle feeding to keep alive. How is that lamb doing today? Yeah, cotton ball. Cotton yeah. ball. <laughs> cotton ball's uh, about 30 pounds down. She's doing good, but I don't have to bottle feed her anymore. That, so. oh, that's good to hear. Uh, hey, we gave the dollars that we raised this morning to uh, the 4-H. So mm-hmm. 
You know, what's your connection with 4-H and why did we direct the dollars there? Yeah, you know, I'm not, I never was in 4-H as a, a kid. And um, although my children were, I, I really love the idea of young people embracing agriculture and new agriculture, regenerative farming, and some of the things that are going to help our climate change and uh, help move us forward. And 4-H does that uh, with young people, and it helps helps shape their minds, makes them good people. Well, I heard... Um between this podcast and when we finished the broadcast that one of our largest donations came in from a former client who lives out in Washington State who was thrilled that we were doing this virtually so he could participate because he no longer lives here in Minnesota. So that's exciting. You're inspiring people all over the country. Yes, and thank you very much for that. Yeah. So the final question is this. One person quipped in saying, Bruce, this looks like this is a little bit outside of your comfort zone. Uh, did you, uh, I mean, the, the question is, did you find this inspiring and fun or terrifying? Oh, well, I got to tell you, this is right in my comfort zone. I'm, in, I'm experienced at this. Nobody knows this, but when I was four years old, I was on the Captain Kangaroo show once. So <laughs> I have all kinds of experience. No, this was terrifying. And, um, and yet, but it was fun, and it was just like a nice discussion. Before we say goodbye to Bruce, we always ask this one question of our speakers, and that question is this. What evidence can you share with us that you know for sure that goodness pays for you in your leadership? Yeah, that's always um, a question that is on top of every CEO's mind. Am I, what am I doing here? How do I know it's working? Mm -hmm. And on a day-by-day -day basis, you can see your employees' engagement. It's positive. You can see them coming up with new ideas and owning the business. But that's rather subjective. And like someone pointed out, yeah, I am a numbers person. Mm -hmm. And so I, I've got three things that I know that it's working on. The first one is we have a um, employee promoter score. It's kind of like a net promoter score. Mm -hmm. Our employee promoter score is sky high, and it has been for the last two, two periods of measurement, the last two six-month periods. That's fantastic. The second one is we had last year the largest backlog. We developed the largest backlog even through the pandemic than we have ever had. That's amazing. That is amazing. And then the final one is not just specifically on test tech, but for the other companies. When you put this in, you can trade at a higher, higher multiple when it comes time to trade the company than the industry average. And I've seen proof of that. Well, that's spectacular because we, we believe that financial results are possible and not only possible, but are better when you follow the Ideas around goodness pays. So thank you very much for being here, Bruce. We, we really appreciate that. Thank you so much, Chloe. We really appreciate the fact that you uh, beamed in from New York City, and we'll see you in April as well. So as we close here, I just want to say that I really do believe we will look back on the pandemic as a gift. It exposed some of those things that needed to be exposed in our society, and it opened up some windows into how many things can actually be better while most of us are yearning for hugs and handshakes and the traditional ballroom meetings, by doing this virtual broadcast, we're reaching into every corner of the United States, and that fits our mission of spreading goodness. Coming out of this pandemic, at Good Leadership, we're doubling down on the idea that was shared by Richard Davis, the former CEO of U.S. Bank, who was our speaker at the November 2019 breakfast. He said this, the best way to protect and grow any enterprise is by building a strong leadership team. That's what good leadership does. Leaders like Bruce DeWitt, 
who we met today, they know that the best teams are made of people who learn to care about each other, both personally and professionally. And because they care, they build bold plans and solve difficult problems together. No one has done more research on the power of goodness to help leaders create great business results than us. Goodness is when people thrive together in a culture of encouragement, accountability, and positive teamwork. Throughout 2021, we're sharing stories of good leadership virtually, and our intention is to share the success habits of leaders who know how to make goodness pay. As we heard from Bruce today, great results are really difficult if your executive team is not aligned, committed, and openly accountable for one another's success. It, it all begins with knowing for sure that your team has a compelling plan. It's the most important part in how to make goodness pay. But the caution here is really simple. Our own data shows that only 54% of clients, when surveyed for the first time, actually have a compelling plan. Perhaps it's time for you as a leader to do a mid-year check-in to see if that's true with your team as well. Thank you for investing in your development as a good leader who radiates goodness. We appreciate your support and encouragement to keep this programming going. For information about the executive team coaching programs of Good Leadership, visit goodleadership.com. The next Good Leadership Breakfast is at 9 a.m. Central Time on Friday, April 23. You can register for free at goodleadership.com. We'll record another one of these podcasts with our speaker, Ray Kowalik, CEO of Burns & McDonald, one of the most successful employee-owned engineering firms in the world.